Behind the lens, uh, we missed you last week, Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully, you all had a peaceful Memorial Day weekend uh, before gearing up for what we have all faced uh, around the globe, especially here in the United States this past weekend uh, with the protests, the peaceful peaceful protests, and the rioting, looting, burning, vandalism. Um, you name it, the penal code counts are innumerable at this point. Um, just a word to everybody, protest. There are ways to protest. Look at history. Look at the sit-ins of the 60s. Get your permits from your government agencies. They give you instructions. If you're, if you're designated to protest in a park, you stay in that park. If you are allowed to protest for X hours, you protest for that. Honor your curfews. Um, there are a lot of people that have already been injured. We don't need that. We don't need that. And now we have to worry about what's going to happen after all of the protesting and the rioting and the failure to social distance and wear masks. Of course, some of the looters, I commend you, you did cover your faces with full masks. Um, but seriously, this is a serious situation. It's a serious issue that we are facing as a people. Um, please be safe. Don't be stupid. Stop the violence and vote because that's how you're going to see change. Get involved at your local levels. Get involved at your community levels. Um, that's the best way to affect change. Uh, and don't go breaking the law. It's that simple. Uh, many of you were not around after the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. Many of you were not around after the, all of the riots around the country in 1968. Uh, I remember the ones that were in Philadelphia and, New and Newark, New Jersey back then. Uh, it's not pretty. And the police do convict. And now with social media, with surveillance cameras, body cams, you will be found. You will be prosecuted. Uh, just ask anybody who was caught after, after the Rodney King riots. Um, we don't need that in society. You want a better society, help make it one. Uh, one of the great ways that we can all make society better is through film. Through films and filmmakers that have a voice, that have something to say, um, that speak to the culture, that speak to society, that just entertain us, or that make us think. Uh, got two filmmakers today we're, we're talking with, uh, both with projects that make you think. One, Lisa Raven. Lisa was here back in August of 2019 talking about her film that was just hitting the fest circuit, Snayland. Uh, a beautiful film done low budget, no budget, with minimal crew, minimal carbon footprint, shot in Iceland. Uh, Lisa's back with us because the film is now... It's still on the festival circuit. It is currently in the Brooklyn Film Festival. And it's a film festival that has now become totally virtual. So we're going to talk to Lisa about that and also about some of the subject matter in her film. And also based on her experience as a filmmaker already with a minimal crew, minimal footprints, how does she think she will be able with future films to adjust to filmmaking in the time of COVID? But before we get to Lisa, I'm so excited. Been holding this interview. Mark Bombach. You know Mark best as a screenwriter for Insurgent, War for Planet of the Apes, Dawn of Planet of the Apes, Total Recall, The Wolverine, Live Free or Die Hard, and of course, a guilty pleasure favorite, Race to Witch Mountain with Dwayne Johnson. 
Uh, but now Mark ups his, ups his own game, and he has taken William Landay's acclaimed novel, Defending Jacob, and creator, writer, showrunner, uh, he has turned it into a magnificent eight-episode miniseries that just completed airing. Uh, Mark and I had talked about this. We wanted to wait till all eight episodes aired before running this interview because there are spoilers. So if you haven't seen the, the miniseries yet and you're worried about spoilers, close your ears until the half-hour point of the show and then come back on for Lisa. Uh, but it is the series is amazing. Chris Evans, who doesn't want Captain America? Uh, as a devoted father... Assistant District Attorney, very successful. Michelle Dockery plays his wife, Lori. Uh, Jaden Martell, this is, it is award-worthy, and I truly, truly hope that the uh, Academy of Television Arts and Sciences acknowledges Jaden's work with an Emmy nomination, portraying Jacob. Cherry Jones plays criminal a criminal defense attorney, Joanna Klein. Pablo Schreiber plays uh, <clears throat> the DA who was prosecuting Jacob, accused of murdering a classmate. Through it all, his father is a diehard champion and supporter. The structure of defending Jacob in the book and in the series is set within the confines of a grand jury hearing with Andy Barber being questioned and testifying. Um, the structure is fantastic. It keeps you on your toes and it just builds and builds and builds. So that by the time we get to episode episode six and then into seven, you're on the edge of your seat and you're really sure you know what's happening and what's going to happen and what has happened. But I got news for you. You don't. Um, this is something that Mark now put on a very wide brimmed hat to encompass all these new tasks. He was involved in every level of the production, from working with director Morton Tildum, Academy Award-nominated director Morton Tildum, for The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. And that film also twists and turns. You think you know what's happening, you don't. Morton is a superb director for this kind of story. But take a listen as Mark and I really go in-depth and again, there are spoilers. So if you haven't seen the series and you want to be surprised, close your ears right now. Come back at the half hour mark to listen to Lisa talk about Snayland. But for right now, enjoy Mark Bombach talking, defending Jacob. Hi, Mark. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not too bad. Well, I don't know what to say about defending Jacob, Mark. Um... Wow, 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 wow. Thank you. This is amazing. Um, That's very kind of you. Thank you. My first question for you, though, is what was it about Landay's novel that made you go from film screenwriter to defending Jacob and also going with a limited episodic versus turning it into a film well it's funny you should ask that when it was the book was sent to me by anonymous content who are producers on it and it sent me with the idea that I would adapt it for a film and when I started reading it it became apparent to me that this isn't really the kind of film we make anymore it's really something that I think would have felt a little bit dated as a film and also I would have had a really hard uh, road getting to getting to the green light. So um, while I was reading it, I started to think about shows that I really loved recently, like Broadchurch or even the first season of True Detective. And um, it occurred to me that this is a, a story that had enough weight to it and enough going on that I could try to tackle it as an eight-hour, uh, you know, series. And it, I, when I watched those shows, I was in awe of what they're able to do and really the scope that they're able to uh, achieve with that sort of open-ended storytelling. 
And on a personal uh, note, I have four children, and I think about being a parent all the time, and there is something about the story that really spoke to me as a parent. It is, you know, one of these cliches, but it's true. It's every parent's worst nightmare. And uh, I knew that if I was to write it as a limited series, I'd want to write all the episodes myself, and it would require a ton of time. So it needed to be about something that I truly wanted to spend each day thinking about. And so those, that's how those two, um, those two interests sort of aligned around Defending Jacob. Well, and that's something that I love about the way this is structured is that, yeah, Jacob is there, but this entire, this entire series is about the parents. It's about the parent-child relationship, the parent-parent relationship, from Billy Barber to Andy to Laurie, and there that you know that those adults inter- intersecting with each other as parents, uh, and I found that really striking. But also the way you bring in the whole psychopathology ideas, and I'm so glad you deviated from the book with the ending. Oh, thanks. So glad. Um, because I was so disappointed with the book when Jacob when we lost Jacob. Yeah. Um, and it's like, what? You go through all of this. <laughs> well, you know, I'm assuming you're going to air this. Um, It'll be after once the show is out, and if you, you know, I would sort of warn anyone who's listening yes. if you haven't watched the show to sort of turn this off. Um, but uh, yeah, in the in the book, Jacob does uh, die. And uh, and that's really coming on the heels of something that, again, in the book to me actually didn't bother me. But when I tried to think about literalizing it as a as a piece of uh, motion picture entertainment, it did bother me. Which is, in the book, it's really implied that he has probably murdered Hope, and so he is sort of graduating from being someone who maybe in a fit of rage or or passion or whatever murdered a classmate potentially um, to someone who's now more of a serial killer um and that felt not really true to the way i conceived the character for the show mm-hmm. i think in the book the character is written much darker uh, jacob is he's you know he's yeah. much more suspicious and um i really was interested in trying to make him a little bit more typical and a little more enigmatic and conceivably innocent and conceivably guilty and when you write him that way it's harder to swallow the idea that he would have in, on the heels of getting acquitted, kill another person. <laughs> so when I removed that element, it was even more, uh, it felt more um, uh, the, uh, a robbery a bit uh, to, to have him die at the end. So that was sort of the thinking behind it. Um, but I'm glad it worked for you. I know a lot of people love the book's ending, so I'm hoping that they, if anything, feel like, oh, this is a different way it could have ended. Um, and have the experience, uh, you know, of seeing a different version of an ending for the story. I would. I. I have to admit, I would have liked to have seen Lori die in the car crash. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, what I'm really trying to to get at at the end um, is this idea that they've constructed a prison for themselves. Yeah. Like they have this this moment in the in the last episode where they are both in the book only Andy is aware right but in the, in the in the show both Lori and Andy become aware mm-hmm. of the fact that they have unwittingly but nevertheless allowed um, a murder to take place to get their son to be free yep and they have a moral choice at that point do they come forward and and make sure that the authorities know that this was not a suicide this was a murder and really all bets are off in terms of what happened to Ben or do they conceal that information? And you see, once they do that, it's just that's the thing that's just destroying Lori mm-hmm. and eating her up from the inside. Now, in the book, it's different. She never learns that. So what's destroying her is this idea that, yeah. oh, now he's killed Hope. Um, but because they both have sort of decided to adopt this lie, I was really interested in is this notion that at the end, they're prisoners of that lie. So it's almost letting her off easy if she was to die. Now she's going to have to live with this idea that her son will probably recover from this coma eventually. And when he does, he's going to look at her the way she's looked at him, which is, did you, are you or are you not a potential murderer? Yeah, <laughs> you know, did, you did you try, try to, to kill, kill me? me yeah. It felt like a more just ending for her. Uh, oh, no. I, I, yeah, I understand it. I just, you know, I would have preferred to see her. Um, it, because it's interesting watching the dynamic of that character, but it's more interesting watching 
how you developed how you develop Andy through the series because he is the unwavering champion of his son. Yeah. He, yes. he reminds me of those sports parents who sit on who it's like their kid could have dropped the ball so a grand slam hum, home run takes place but no their son is right. You know, their son did well, nothing you know, I wrong. Think- I think in real life as well as in fiction, like I think oftentimes people who parent like that are are having a difficult time separating their children from themselves yeah. and seeing their in their children's behavior as a, a direct reflection of themselves. And I think in terms of our story, um, Andy, to, to 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 confront the possibility that Jacob could have committed a murder is to confront the possibility that he himself is capable of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, because he's lived his whole childhood with this notion of I have a father who has committed that kind of thing. He just can't permit himself to go there. It would just be too much of a, a crushing psychic burden. And mm-hmm. I think what he manages to do on his journey by the end of the story is finally own up to that possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, he really, in a sense, takes a big, a big step at the end by telling Lori the truth for the first time, even knowing it's going to probably destroy their marriage and potentially their family. And it's probably the bravest thing he does over the course of, even though he's drunk when he does it, it's probably the bravest thing he does over the course of the story. <laughs> he couldn't have done it if he wasn't drunk. No, he wasn't going to do it if he wasn't drunk. <laughs> but, you know, that, one, one, perhaps one of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the entire series, Mark, is that monologue you write for J.K. Simmons as Billy um, for, the, for that meeting. Um, you've actually got the phone call, and then you've got the face-to-face, um, both of those. But when he talks about, you know, if his grand, if if you if he the kid ever wants to see his grandpa, he knows where yeah. I am. But after he explains and try and denies, nope, 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 because you know the walls have ears in prisons. Yeah. Um, but. That spoke so much about him actually trying to right a wrong that he had done with his own son. Yeah. Uh, and I that, mean, it's, that, it's such an interesting idea that he commits or he sort of, you know, orders a murder and he sees that as his path to redemption somehow. Or yeah. at least the thing that could potentially be his good contribution to the world. And it's an interesting place, you know, he's, the, 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 his definition of right and wrong is so skewed compared to our own, but it's done in an effort of doing something for his family, you know, yeah. uh, even though it's such a crazy thing to do. Um, yeah, it's an element that's in the book. I'm not so sure that the scene is the same in the book, but it's definitely inspired by that idea was in the book. And, um, and I think the-, the character in the book was written... Again, I tried to shade people a little bit more. So the character in the book, I think Billy was a little harsher and a yeah. little less self-reflective uh, than he is in our show. And, of course, having J.K. performing. Um, yes. Oh, I mean, all credit to him. The it's, poignancy it's that he brings in those moments. Um, and he really does. The, the big selling point is that he really does believe that he is trying to make up for some of the pain that he caused his own son. And you really, your heart goes out to, of all characters, goes out to him. It is a credit to him as an actor, though. I think it's a really hard, I mean, I I saw a few people read for it, and um, it's very hard to do uh, what he does, which is to elicit sympathy for someone who just, implied that they killed somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a testament to his gift. How challenging was it for you to break this down in the episodic format into as many episodes as you have? Um, I would say it was one of the biggest challenges I've faced as a writer, um, but on the flip side, it was probably the most enjoyment I've had or one of the, one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had creatively um, because there were, when you're writing screenplays, especially when you write screenplays for sort of bigger movies, uh, that you're very conscious of where you are in the story in terms of minutes, right? Like, you know, the movie's not going to want to be longer than at most two and a half hours, but usually around two hours mm-hmm. or even less. And so you're always sort of 
looking at your um, metaphorical watch to, to see like, okay, um, where are we in this, in this story? And uh, I think with this, I wasn't as concerned about, um, oh, it's been 20 minutes into the episode and there hasn't been a big tense, you know, sort of scary moment or mm -hmm. something. It was much more about treating each episode as their own sort of mini movie and then really structuring. The one thing I did approach this, uh, you know, in terms of my craft as a screenwriter is I thought of the whole story as one mega screenplay and was able to sort of break it up into act one, two, and three, and, you know, sort of episodes one and two uh, and sort of most of three function as act one, and then four, five, six, and seven function as act two, and then eight it functions as act three. And in doing that, it sort of helped me structure it a bit as well. Mm -hmm. Because I, I love the structures. I love the breaks of each episode. Okay. And I love how the timing breaks out. Some are 45 minutes, some are 50 minutes. Um, obviously, the conclusion is, is longer. Um, but you're riveted. You're really riveted. And a lot of that is also testament to Morton as your director. Um, yeah, for sure. The cinematography yeah. is outstanding, but the direction and the fuel that's fueled by the editing of this and the pacing of it, um, so well done. So, um, which leads me to, you know, ask you, your showrunner on this, what was yeah. this learning curve like for you? <laughs> it was a learning curve for Morton and I both. I mean, I think if we were making a film, the dynamic on a set is much different, where it's really the director's vision and the screenwriter's job is to help him realize or her realize that. Uh, on TV, it's different because of the length and, you know, it just, it, sometimes you don't have the same director directing every episode. So... Really what we arrived at is a vision that we both could agree upon. And luckily we were really in lockstep on that vision. So um, a lot of it was getting to be more comfortable asserting my opinion as to what it is we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but if you were to read my scripts, I, I tend to also be a little bit prescriptive as to what it is I think we're gonna watch. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, it, it, Morton is just so gifted at really sort of knowing where to put the camera, what to say to the actors, um, and what the scene sort of wants to look like in post, you know, in the editing room while we're standing on the set, uh, really thinking about how it's going to cut together. I mean, I think one of the scenes to me that is really just uh, a masterclass in how to direct is uh, the scene where Cherry's uh, character uh, is grilling Jacob in her office. Oh. And, you know, it feels like the camera's moving constantly, but the camera actually does not move at all. It's just he has so many different sizes and setups of where the camera is and how close or far we are from different characters. And, you know, that was really a very intentional choice on his part when we were on set to say, okay, we're going to cover this from a lot of different angles. It's going to feel like the camera's all over the place, but we're actually never going to move the camera uh, in terms of the move. You know, we're never going to pan. We're never going to mm -hmm. dolly. It's just going to be static shots that are going to cut together this way. And it really gives you this claustrophobic sense uh, it gives you movement while also giving you claustrophobia, which is, you know, sort of an interesting... I mean, that, that scene, Mark, is... Because I'm also a lawyer. I don't practice, but I spent 27 years in law, um, primarily in in PI and, and not in civil, not criminal. But I have a lot of friends who are criminal defense attorneys, and I got to tell you, Cherry nailed, nailed that quote-unquote inquisition uh, yeah. of Jacob. And on the other hand, Jaden gives the performance of his career thus far. And I completely agree. I mean, Cherry is, you know, she's oh. a goddess. So, like, we're just, you, yeah, I, I haven't had that with that many actors where there's nothing you can ask them to say that they won't say it better than you wrote it. <laughs> so, um, you know, like, it, she's just that good where the most banal dialogue she can turn it into something that sounds interesting she's just that um and as a person she's just that oh. riveting you just want to be around her and hear her talk and uh so we were just beyond ecstatic when she agreed to do this part she's fabulous and Jaden is Jaden is truly the linchpin for the whole show like when you think about actors his age yeah um, and what their you know what their limitations are they, they are children still and Jaden understood the scripts and that character as well, if not better than any adults working on the show, and was so good. I mean, about we would, I would say, if, 
you probably got the fewest notes of anybody on the show. <laughs> like really didn't need to be told very much. Just knew exactly what to do in each scene. And right from the first take, we would just be astonished every every scene. He just did that good. Well, uh, personally, for Emmy consideration, I'd be submitting that scene with the two of them. Well, I wonder if they will. I hope they will. Uh, I would I like hope to see so. both of them get recognized for how, how incredible they are. Yeah. You know, as part of this collaborative experience that a writer doesn't normally get, how involved were you with the casting process? Uh, I know you've got Chris, who is also a, an executive producer here. You know, how was this collaboration with the different departments? Um, it, I, was, I was involved in every single decision that it winds up on the screen. It was really the, one of the reasons I wanted, to, I wanted to be a showrunner. I really wanted to have that experience of, of having an idea in my head as to what the show should look like, feel like, sound like, and and really be involved in that. So, no department head was hired without um, no department head was hired without my speaking with them and having extensive conversations. And all the casting decisions were made by Morton and myself. Um, uh, really, it was get hold of me. Um, it was just extremely uh, extremely collaborative. I, I, really, again, like uh, Morton could have been more difficult about it because he's more accustomed to having that kind of autonomy mm -hmm. as the director of films. Um, but he understood that this is what I wanted uh, from this experience too, and I think he said, "Let's just do everything together." And um, and I feel like I got a bit of a crash course in directing, and I think he got a bit of a crash course in writing, and we both sort of figured out how to produce uh we really were very active as producers and chris was a fantastic asset as well um you know he he wasn't looking to sort of be hands-on day-to-day producing right but whenever there was an issue we would loop chris at chris in there wasn't a phone call he wasn't uh, happy to make and uh really was exceptionally good about sort of thinking about the whole gestalt of the show and knowing where we were episode to episode and really just uh, a great sort of leader for the cast and for the crew uh, really made everybody feel like we were a team working on something. You know, how um, how happy are you, how pleased are you with the the cinematography from the blue wash look of the series? For me, I think it's perfect. It's perfect ambient tone for visual uh, yeah, tonal I mean, bandwidth. Was, you know, you'd see it, we have such good, um, what's called video assist, right? Like, we have such good monitors and we have such good DI uh, on set that we're able to sort of get a sense of what it's going to look like just mm -hmm. from our monitors. Um, and also when you stand on the set, the way Jonathan lights, Jonathan Freeman, who's our, our DP, um, you can tell what things are going to look like a little bit. Um, Jonathan has this thing that became a running joke where like if there's a light that could be turned off in the room, it will be off. Like uh, he really likes light coming in from windows and as, as little sort of light bulb work as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think really what it manages to do is capture um, the New England vibe of it. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, there's a chilliness even in summertime in New England. And um, I think he really manages to evoke that. And then also there's this tension between the outside world and the indoors, right? And the family over the course of the story is forced indoors more and more. Like I think, the, the, especially in episode five where they take the trip to the lake and you're suddenly like, oh my God, there's green, there's sunshine, yes. there's... there's <laughs> And we wanted you to sort of feel that. Um, in the same way when you're at the school and you can sort of feel the difference between the outside of the school and the inside of the school has that chilly blue again. Mm -hmm. um, so really that sort of tension between exterior and interior, which not to get too pretentious, but is also sort of one of the themes of the show is who we are inside versus the exterior that we project to people. Mm -hmm. uh, how challenging was it in, in constructing the script with the back and forth with the grand jury uh, examination. Well, to be honest it, with you, it's the opposite of challenging. That's like the that's my that's my crutch. <laughs> I always know like it, it actually helps. Keep, like if you were to sort of really analyze how those scenes work, they help me jump through time. Yeah. They help me explain things that are a little confusing, and they keep this. T you know, the ending is a bleak ending, and I think they set you up for that sort of faded um, sadness of the ending. Uh, that I think would be too jarring without uh, without that sort of being seated throughout the show, that something awful is coming, and Andy doesn't look happy when he's being grilled here. And, you know, the fun of it is, uh, the fun in quotes, is that 
you're assuming this is about Jacob. Yes. And, uh, and I think that that's a lift from the book and a, a brilliant thing in the book where you're just like, oh, even if Jacob gets off, they must have found some loophole to arrest him or blah, 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 blah. When you get to the end and you're like, oh, my God, this isn't about Jacob at all. Um, I just thought that was a brilliant uh, idea from Bill Landay, and it would be crazy not to use it in the show. Oh, it, it works perfectly. And the way that Morton has that shot and the way that it's paced, when you see that back and forth um, yeah. in the courtroom, it is just, if you don't know the story, you d- you're thinking that, okay, this poor man, is he's giving evidence for his own against his son. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'd love to give a shout-out to our set designer who, you know, that's not a real courtroom, that's, that's a set. Um, but we shot at a courthouse for the exteriors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think it, it captured, I mean, we, that is a, uh, almost a spitting image of the courtrooms that we looked at when we were scouting. And, um, and in fact, that's, that courtroom that the grand jury is in versus the courtroom where the trial is held mm-hmm. are the same set. We just redressed the set um, and, uh, and changed the windows a bit. And uh, again, she's like, just a brilliant, Patty Podesta is just a brilliant set designer who... We knew we'd spend a lot of time in those rooms, and we didn't want them to be boring, but we wanted them to feel authentic. And I think she manages, you know, she works very closely with Jonathan, the cinematographer, so that you you are not annoyed to be back in those the grand jury inquisitions. Having been in plenty of courtrooms over the decades, I can tell you, I never would have thought that it was a set. Yeah, I know. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it was absolutely astounding. Astounding. So at the end of the day, now that you have survived your first show running experience um, and, you know, defending Jacob is out there in the world and everybody's watching this absorbed in this tale. Um, as I told Alexis, it's I had to binge watch it again yesterday. I'd already watched before. I had to binge watch everything. Um, because there's just so many intricacies and so much nuance, so much that comes through in the production design, in the cinematography, with the camera positioning, with it, with the framing, with the angling, um, that really lets you, and the camera likes to rest, so we really get to feel the uncomfortableness of certain scenes and what's unfolding within the family between Andy and Lori. Uh, between Lori and Jacob, um, all those little things. And personally, I loved it even more the second time around. Oh, that's nice to hear. Thank you. But I'm curious for you now, what did you learn about yourself now wearing this new, very wide-brimmed hat that you will take forward into your future projects, be they writing more screenplays be they delving more into television or show running? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely anxious to, to create another show like this. Um, I, I really love this format. I don't know uh, if I'm, you know, if I have the ideas yet for a series series, something that could extend for years and years, but certainly something that could be a limited series like this. I'd love to find something to do next, and I'm actively looking for that. Um but I also do love screenwriting, and it's a different thing. You know, it's, uh, I will say I, I have done a little screenwriting uh, for features since we wrapped the show, mm-hmm. and um, it is a little bit different uh, returning to it now that I've had um, so much uh, more creative control as a showrunner. I don't, not to say that I don't enjoy it, but um, I, I, miss, I miss a bit of that control. So I'm hoping that I can just maintain both careers, uh, which is not sort of unusual these days. So on the screenwriting front, I really try to work on things that I feel like I can. I do a lot of rewriting and, and script doctoring for other people's scripts. And that to me is just really enjoyable, uh, relatively low stakes work for me. Um, and then if I'm doing something that I'm the first person writing it and really it's my my baby and i'm building it from the ground up and i really have to love it and uh and that's something that i've i've sort of taken away from defending jacob is i don't think i could have survived the process it was you know all in almost three years of work um i don't think i could have survived it if i didn't love the project so much well it's a project well worth loving mark i can tell you that and the result speaks for itself and that was 
creator, writer, showrunner Mark Bombach talking about defending Jacob. And even if you've listened to this, if you haven't seen the show, go see it, Apple TV. It is phenomenal. I've watched the whole thing twice already uh, because it is just so good. But right now, something else that's really, really good. Joining us live is Lisa Raven. Welcome back. Hi. I, it's great to be back. I Well, actually, I was hoping by this point you'd be back because you're in distribution. But being at the Brooklyn Film Festival is nothing to sneeze at. Absolutely. And sneezing is not a of COVID-19. So um, <laughs> we are, we're thrilled. And, you know, there's so much dialogue right now among filmmakers and among content producers and festival people about whether or not festivals should be streaming films as opposed to showing them live in a space where people gather in mm-hmm. person. And, um, you know, the question of whether it's going to affect distribution. But for us, the exciting thing is that our film is going to be seen all over the world. That's that's. That's true. So how you're the first filmmaker that I have had a chance to speak with, Lisa, about your film in a film festival that instead of being live and in person, it's all it's virtual. So I'm curious how how this is for you. Do you like this idea? Do you prefer a full on festival experience? What's your take on this? Uh Oh, I think we lost her, Pam. There you are. You disappeared. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened. Can, can you hear me clearly? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, that's great. You know, I'm way up in the mountains of Alberta, and I have a feeling that a crow flew over the house and cut off the signal. You know, so we, we're, those damn birds, and people wonder why I hate birds. Okay, this is why. <laughs> This is why. Okay, well then, while we were interrupted by the crow cutting out the signal, um, I was at, I'm was i curious because you are the first filmmaker that I've had a chance to talk to who has a film in a festival that instead of being real live, everybody hug, smile, do Q&As, and just be so happy to, for that festival experience, you're the first one I've spoken to who now is in a virtual festival with their film. So I'm curious your feelings on that. I can tell you right away one thing I really like is that you can access the film 24-7. It's not like you have to have a ticket to go at a particular time and you've got to decide between film one or film two because they're both showing at the same time. You can just log in at any time to screen. This works so well for me. (laughs) You know, for many people, it's not the right decision, but for me, it's absolutely the right decision. And I think for Snyland, it's the right decision because we have an international cast, an international crew, and people all over the world are able to watch the film 24-7. I, it's important to get a film out there, even yeah. if it's for a limited time, the 10 days of the festival, which can lead to more opportunities for not only the filmmakers, but also the actors, and, I believe, more opportunity for distribution worldwide. Oh, absolutely. So I'm very pleased. You know, oh. Well, I'm thrilled that people get to see it, because you know how much I love this film. Um, and it's so beautiful. And the challenges that you overcame, I mean, here you are, you were shooting in Iceland, you're outside, um, you were there during daylight, 24-7, seven days a week. <laughs> um, and you worked yeah. that into the film as a whole, from your visual language, um, the visual tonal bandwidth, um, with the characters. Um, and that's, that's kudos to Frank Bruckner, who I just think is fabulous, as our intrepid reporter, Fred, who goes to this little fishing village looking for one story about a festival and stumbles onto something else, um, which is now, especially in the current climate, has taken on new meaning after we've really seen the attacks by the administration on the press. 
um, by all of the, the ever-mounting lawsuits for libel, slander, um, you know, rights over somebody's own story, all of a sudden your little film is here in the middle of the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, how, how you, as an associate professor, as a filmmaker, how do you view this opportunity with a film like Snyland? Well, you know, it's very, it's very timely, as you said. We're really listening to the dialogue around the idea that the press is the enemy of the people. Journalists are the enemy of the people. And, and we see this reflected out on the streets right now with mm-hmm. the protests. Um, honoring the life of George Floyd and others, and the anger around the um, the things that have been happening for decades, and then we put the pandemic on top of it, and everything boils over. And we watch live as journalists are being fired upon, beaten, arrested. Yep. And we have to ask, wait a minute, is this the way we want to live? Are journalists really the enemy of the people? Aren't journalists just out there finding stories and telling them? Mm-hmm. Are, are journalists not out there bearing witness? I mean, right now, we're all bearing witness because we all have phones. We're all <clears throat> in a position to film what's happening, which is why we know what happened to George Floyd. But The bigger question that Snyland asks is, who has the right to tell our own story? Mm -hmm. Who has the right to tell our story? Do we own the right to our story? Um, Which is the dilemma that Frank, playing Fred, is put into. Does he have the right to tell someone else's story? Mm -hmm. Especially when it's a story that somebody has gone to such great lengths to quote unquote craft in order to live a peaceful, peaceable life. Exactly. You know, and I also look at the people who are out there because, you know, I'm I'm, right now I'm so focused on what's going on out in the streets. I look at the people who are not allies of the Black Lives Matter movement or are not there to honor the lives of the, people that were killed but are out there hijacking their story, their truth, and looting and throwing bottles and causing damage. And I think, well, those people are out there believing that they have the right to tell the story of the people who are on the streets um, protesting what's happened. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. But, yeah. They're so, essentially these opportunists and these criminals, let's call them what they are, these opportunists and criminals are essentially trying to hijack the lives and the stories of the people who are trying to tell the collective story at this moment. Yeah. And that's that's what Fred, the character, is trying to do or is struggling his dilemma is, do I hijack this woman's story mm-hmm. and tell it the way I want for my profit and for my success? Or do I step back and allow her to own and claim her own story as she wishes and to tell it the way she wants? Mm-hmm. And, espe- so. and especially with Snyland, we get into the situation where we have Melanie, um, our lovely beekeeper. And we have her wonderful husband. We have Olaf, who is just... Oscar. Oscar. He is just so adorable. And it's how many lives... If you go and delve into the past and hijack somebody else's story to tell it the way you want it told, not the way they want to live out a second chapter in their life, how many lives are you going to upset, destroy, and for what? Because in a situation like Snyland, this it would just be for Fred's own benefit. Yes. 
There's no, yeah. there's nobody it's else. The in, ripple effect. Yeah, it's the ripple effect, the adverse ripple effect, when the only positive effect is going to benefit Fred. And that's a big, yeah. big, and that you get into a, a real moral dilemma there. Anybody with a conscience, you get into a moral dilemma at that point. So they, then it begs the question, the deeper question about ethics and integrity of each of us yeah. as a person, as an individual. All from, all, from this, all from this little, little film you shot in a, fish, a fishing village in Iceland. Exactly. I like to tell little stories. Little stories about big questions. Well, this this is this is a very big question that comes now instead of being a subtextual element of the film, really blossoms to the forefront um, because of the times that we're in. Uh, and I I find that very interesting about film when you tell these little stories that might only have an appeal to one person, one filmmaker, one screenwriter, or very few people. And then all of a sudden, it's whoosh. And it, it just it just speaks to so much more. And that's what you've done well, here. Thank you. I, I, like, I like to put people in situations where they have to make a choice about whether to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And then really explore their struggle. And... I think, you know, film is, stories are often a metaphor for life. But, you know, it, uh, one situation can ask questions that, um, that we would ask in another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think the human experience is something we all, we all share. We are all put in the same situations, no matter where we live or what our struggles are. We we have a lot in common in terms of how we how we live and what how we try to do the right or the wrong things. Mm-hmm. That sounds so very very serious. And and in in trying to write these kinds of stories, I also like to make it accessible to people. You know, not to make it too deep, mm-hmm. but um, to allow us to to appreciate the the moments in the film, which is why I like to shoot outdoors in the middle of nowhere, so that we place these characters in situations where they're responding physically to the environment as well. And here, uh, you couldn't ask for a more beautiful environment. You've got those wide-angle, wide-screen images of Fred and Melanie walking through the hills with the beautiful purple blossoms just covering, covering, you know, mountainsides. And it's you just, and the wind is blowing, so you see the flowers blowing, their hair is blowing. But it is just, you could look at those kind of images forever and get lost in them and by the same token it allows you it gives you time to breathe and think about the story that is that is underneath that those images exactly exactly yeah thank you for saying that no i it was an interesting it was an interesting experience to go so far away with a very small crew, um, and then be in 24 hours a day of sunlight. <laughs> I still think that's and, just... <laughs> yeah. I just love that you survived that. Well, you know, my fantasy had always been to do an apocalypse now. Take yeah. people to a desert island, two years, nobody leaves till we finish shooting the film. I don't care who goes crazy but we're going to make a film. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> that is what you did. Um, because I know you had to actually take a boat. You had to watch what equipment you took over. Um, and the yep. amazing thing is you, you left a very small carbon footprint. But this all begs yeah. the question now, Lisa, in today's environment, in life in the time of COVID, with filming again, 
how do you leave a small carbon footprint like you did and still maintain uh, social distancing, sanitizing, and all of these new requirements that we expect are going to have, will be implemented? I think in some ways it's going to be easier because you are bringing a certain consciousness and awareness mm-hmm. to the process um, that perhaps wasn't there before. The idea of bringing a whole lot of people somewhere and taking over and um, throwing things away, doing whatever you needed to get it done, and just throwing money at problems is not the way we can do it right now. It has to be a more conscious, conscientious process of who do we need, where will they be, how can we reduce the... um, the amount of resources, because that means reducing the amount of people and the amount of contact. Mm-hmm. So I think by bringing a, con- a consciousness and an awareness to the process, if you aren't taking people back and forth on airplanes every weekend, if you aren't driving around um, crowd scenes, things like that, you you're, you are already having a smaller carbon footprint. Um, I mean, as a filmmaker, I've always tried to use the least amount of people necessary Mm -hmm. with the idea in mind that at a certain point, you're just bringing people who manage people. So if we can, if I can make films where I stop at that tipping point and I don't need people just to manage all the people, I, I have just the right number of people to do the job for that specific film and the requirements of that specific film, then I feel like we can be even efficient. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Because in the end, I, um, I was going to say, Christine Zaston says that um, your budget is your aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I agree 100% yes. with that, but I also believe that a bit that time is the currency that you're spending. Mm-hmm. You know, now, do you think, you know, with a smaller crew, with minimal people, which you're used to doing anyway, will social distancing present a problem for you? Um, I, you know, I don't think so, because, I, again, I think with less people, you can be more deliberate. Mm-hmm. The way that stories are going to be told in terms of um, contact between actors is a different story. Mm-hmm. That's going to be, that's going to involve the writer, the cinematographer, the director. And it's going to involve a different way of thinking about how to tell the story. But, uh, you know, I when talk began globally about going back to work, I started reading the um, the way that people were going back and the idea of a group going into a set, doing their work, one department going in, doing their work, leaving 15 minutes, wait, clear the air, and then the next group going in. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. But I, you know, I also... Again, I, ha- I have to bring it back to this. When I see people out on the streets or when I see people demanding to crowd into a bar or a restaurant or a nail salon because it's their right, then I worry that film sets and film production um, and content production, that people are going to cut corners and just do it anyway. Because mm-hmm. there's this magical thinking that we've waited long enough, the virus must have gone away. So I think there's a huge level of responsibility that people have to commit to. Mm. Um, And because in the United States, at least, filming is really dependent on insurance. Yeah, this is going to be huge. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people will be willing to sign away their right to 
um, to safety just because they desperately need work. Yeah. Yeah, so well, I, I can I, definitely see new forms of releases that, you know, you waive all rights for any claims if you develop, if you contract COVID, things like that. Um, I, yeah. I see that coming down the pike from a legal standpoint. Um, I think that can be yeah. the, about the only way. Now, how soon do you think you will get back to work shooting on a film? Do you have, oh, man. Do I you have one? Tomorrow. <laughs> but... I'm working on a new story, and my last two films have been shot 100% and 99% outdoors. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to continue with that, um, which, of course, is a much better option for social distancing. Yes. It's just that you can't, you know, you can't keep people out of doors 24-7. Right. But um, I'm right now in a very, very small mountain town in Alberta, Canada. And I look around and I think, what are the possibilities of filming here? Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to make something in a location where I, once again, as I did with Nyland, I used the town as a character. Mm-hmm. What kind of a story could I tell? And would I tell a story about this time about the COVID time mm-hmm. that will be another interesting thing is how this time is reflected going forward right right are are we going to see people wear masks in tv shows in films yeah like what is there the um the suspension of disbelief or will we reflect the way this time really is i think there'll be a mix I honestly do. Yeah? I think there will be a mix. Um, I know. I'm curious to see what filmmakers actually do. I know there are a few filmmakers right now that are filming very uniquely. They're actually direct. They have sent equipment to their actors. They have they have a cinematographer in at one location. The director is at one location. The actor is in another location. Directing remotely via Zoom. And... With no, you know, instruct. So this is going to be interesting to see how all of this comes together uh, in a final edited film with actors setting up the cameras and the lights pursuant to directions being given to them by a cinematographer over Zoom and a director telling them how to act and stand and do whatever. Um, that's one thing that that's already happening with some people. Um, so it'll look like a real film and not you know, a Zoom project with 50 people on screen uh, in little Zoom windows. But then other people, I know they're gearing up. Iceland is already back filming. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Elfer Adelstein the other day, and he now lives in Iceland. And he was saying, oh, yeah, they're already back and open. Bulgaria, the Minister of Health, just signed off there. So Nubiana is up and open um, once the industry comes up with their standards. So, but I'm just, yeah, but because you like possible. shooting outside so much, that, that really, I think you might be one of the first people who can get back out there and film. I would love to. I, you know, I, I also wonder whether in these locations outside of the United States, whether the question of liability and insurance are as paramount. And I don't, I don't know yeah. if that's the, big issue i know because i was in vancouver in march and april i know the question of returning to work there because so many u.s productions shoot in Mm -hmm. vancouver british columbia i know that that the question is is on everyone's mind how can we get back to work when will the u.s go back to work and you may see people going and filming in these other countries because there is less prohibition mm-hmm. I don't know but I think other people are doing a good job I, I think Denmark New Zealand and Australia oh yeah started up very early yeah but now yeah. go, let, going back to Snyland before we have to say goodbye today um, oh, okay so where now Brooklyn Film Festival runs through June 7th so everybody can go to brooklynfilmfestival.com 
they can you know buy their ticket pay whatever it oh, is well, it's free it's, it's free. free it's 100% free all you have to do is register and then you can watch any of the 140 excuse me any of the 147 films on demand until June 7th and Snyland is in the narrative category yeah we'll be doing an Instagram live next Saturday with the Brooklyn Film Festival um, next Saturday is their day dedicated to store, to films about secrets. Ooh, very but, yeah, nice. Yeah, that's the thing. It's um, the festival is not charging. They are making this available to everyone everywhere, twenty four seven, which I think is a unique model for some of these some of the festivals that have decided to go online. Yeah, that's a very, very unique model, um, especially because this normally is, you know, a regular old film yeah. festival. So to do this pivot, uh, you know, we're seeing all of these films that were that have been scheduled for release, especially the independent films, pivoting. So they they might lose their one week theatrical, yeah. but they're pivoting and they've had a captive audience. So hopefully there's been more exposure to these smaller little gems like Snyland, like for directors like yourself, uh, filmmakers yeah. like yourself. Um, that, I think, is one of the great benefits. Um, Absolutely. The Brooklyn Film Festival has been amazing, and they have such an incredible program. I'm so excited to just walk in on their website and stream. There's so many good films. I was so looking many. at the titles, and I mean, there's some there's some that I'm intrigued by that I want to find the time to go in and look at before the festival ends on June 7th. Um, yeah, it's I think it's it's an amazing concept. Of course, I do long for the days when we do have the festival experience of mix and mingle again. Yeah. You know, that will be nice. So now, after Brooklyn, yeah. where does Snylin go? Is there anything on the horizon? Say yes, oh. but I can't say yet. Okay, but it I is going say. somewhere. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Somewhere. Some. Somewhere's. Where? Somewhere's. Just, somewhere's plural. Oh uh, well. Yeah. For right now, anybody who has time, who can, go to the Brooklyn Film Festival. Log in. Two o'clock in the morning. If you can't sleep, log in and you can watch Snyland. It's beautiful. It's fun. The performance, it, it, it is a fun film. Frank does an yeah. amazing job as Fred, but a Vikinger, who, as Oscar, just the expressions on his face make you laugh. Yeah. Um, he, was just in, he was just in the Valhalla Murders, which is an Icelandic series that was streaming, I believe, on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And he was... He, I was just talking to him, and he and um, and um, Olafur Dari Olafsson um, have written a new series that will go into production later this year. Oh, nice! Starring the two of them, so uh, we'll see a lot more of him. I know, and Emily Bear, who plays Melanie. Um, was getting ready to shoot and then COVID happened. So, so many people were ready and then everything got on hold, went on hold. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the next big thing when, when everything starts up again. Um, and I was talking to Amanda Cook, a, a producer, and she was saying that's one of the big problems is now you're going to have to worry about scheduling. Where are you? Where's yeah. your production in the actor's queue or in the cinematographer's yeah. queue? Where are you? Um, do you stay in order from, with the schedule or is it now a free for all because they had future things already booked? So do they get advanced and do the things on hold come back into play? Um, this is <laughs> this could be a free for all that we're just going to watch <laughs> play out here. Well yeah, there'll be going to be fist fights over the seat stands at the rental house. Yeah, oh my God. I hope not. Oh, 
Oh, Lizette, it's so good. I am so thrilled to have you back on the show. So good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. And when you get distribution, you have to come back when you have distribution again. I promise. I promise. Girl Scouts honor. I know you will. I'm just telling you, just because you came back now doesn't mean you don't get to come back again. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great conversation, and it's been great to draw that parallel between Snyland and what's happening right now in the world. And this one looks a lot prettier when you watch it, too. So Thank you. So, you know... You can you can understand and relate and try and analyze what's happening in the world, but it looks pretty when you watch it as Snyland shot in Iceland, rather than yeah, rather than beautiful. that rather than graffiti and and burning cars. So exactly, there's a plus side here. Ah, let's say thank yeah. you so so much, and thank I you. and I will talk to you again soon. And in the meantime, everybody, talk to you soon. go to Brooklyn Film Festival. Check out Snyland and 147 other films. Thank exactly. you. Stay well. Stay you safe. too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was, let's say, Raven. Writer, director, Snyland. Brooklyn Film Festival. It's free. Log in. You can see 149 more films. So if you've gone through everything in your Netflix queue, here. Go. Watch. But I do love this film, and I'm so happy Lisey came back on, and she will be back on when she gets distribution uh, for the film, which I hope, fingers crossed, is soon. That is all the time we have today. We ran a little over. If you haven't seen Defending Jacob, see it. See it. Um, And next week, we've got a full show for you. Next week, we're going to be talking with the filmmakers of Algorithm Bliss and Punching and Stealing. So, until next week, stay safe, stay out of trouble, stay home, honor curfews. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 